Chapter 5, From the Hebrew World of the Bible to the 20th Century, via Greek Philosophy. I begin with a quotation from G.T. Purvis. Post-apostolic writings are mixed with ideas foreign to apostolic Christianity. The latter is unintentionally distorted and misrepresented. To properly study the discipline known as philosophy, it is not enough just to learn what great thinkers believed. You must learn to think for yourself. Accept something only if, after you've thought about it, it seems correct to you. Then you will be doing and not just learning about philosophy. You will be a philosopher. So said Rogers and Baird in their book Introduction to Philosophy, written in 1981. This excellent advice applies equally to the study of the Bible and theology. It prompts us to reflect on the critical issue of the changes which came over apostolic Christianity when, beginning in the second century, the faith became accommodated to its Greco-Roman environment. Biblical Christianity itself, despite differences of emphasis within the New Testament canon, presents a so-called philosophy it claims to define what is of ultimate value, for example, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus, Messiah, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and so on. The New Testament offers an account of the meaning of existence and of a supreme divine purpose being worked out in history. Our concern, however, is to explore the question as to how far the original, quote, faith once delivered to the saints, which Jude urged his contemporaries not to abandon, Jude 3, how much this may gradually and often imperceptibly have suffered a radical alteration under the influence of alien philosophies. If such a process has taken place, it would seem to be in keeping with a truth-seeking philosophy, that we endeavor to recover what has been lost or obscured. Non-Trinitarians have frequently been identified with the so-called heretics, who were inclined in return to charge orthodoxy with having switched the labels. However, a number of commentators from the orthodox camp itself have sounded an alarm that all may not be well with a situation in which, quote, Christians adapted to the Hellenistic culture in order to survive and in an effort to win converts. Eberhard Grieserbach, in an academic lecture on, quote, Christianity and humanism, delivered in 1938, observed that, quote, in its encounter, with Greek philosophy, Christianity became theology. That was the fall of Christianity. That quotation was cited by Robert Friedman, The Theology of Anabaptism, written in 1973. The problem thus highlighted stems from the fact that traditional orthodoxy, while it claims to find its origins in Scripture, in fact, contains elements drawn from a synthesis of Scripture 
and Neoplatonism. So say Rogers and Baird in their book, Introduction to Philosophy. The mingling of Hebrew and Greek thinking was set in motion first in the second century by an influx of Hellenism through the church fathers whose theology was colored by the Platonists Plotinus and Porphyry. The effects of the Greek influence are widely recognized by theologians, though they go largely unnoticed by many churchgoers and believers. G.A.T. Knight states that, and I quote, Many people today, even believing people, are far from understanding the basis of their faith. Quite unwittingly, they depend upon the philosophy of the Greeks rather than upon the Word of God for an understanding of the world they live in. An instance of this is the prevailing belief amongst Christians in the immortality of the soul. Many believers despair of this world. They despair of any meaning in a world where suffering and frustration seem to rule. And so they look for a release for their souls from the weight of the flesh, and they hope for an entry into the world of the spirit, as they call it, a place where souls will find a blessedness they cannot discover in the flesh. The Old Testament, which was, of course, the scriptures of the early church, has no word at all for the modern or ancient Greek idea of, quote, soul. We have no right to read this modern word into St. Paul's word psyche, or soul, for by it Paul was not expounding what Plato had meant by the word. He was expressing what Isaiah and what Jesus meant by it. There is one thing sure we can say at this point, and that is that the popular doctrine of the soul's immortality cannot be traced back to the biblical teaching. That's from Knight's book, Law and Grace, written in 1962. Despite these warnings, however, popular preaching, claiming the name of Christ, continues to promote just such a doctrine of escape to heaven at death as a disembodied soul. The complaint that Scripture is constantly read through spectacles tinged with Neoplatonism was made also by Neil Hamilton, whose concern was with the effect of Greek thinking on our reading of biblical eschatology, the doctrine about the future. Quotation, My impression is that the consensus of opinion in the Church is still more controlled by an extra-Christian idea of the immortality of the soul, rather than by any conception formed after listening faithfully to the New Testament witness. That's from an article entitled The Last Things in the Last Decade from the Journal Interpretation of 1960. This evidence warns us that new layers of meaning have been superimposed on the biblical documents. The process must result in a loosening of the bond which ties us to the original intention of the biblical writers. 
Clearly, if we transfer a given term into a new linguistic context, there's a grave danger that its meaning may be entirely lost. In fact, the Bible's story might thus be transformed almost beyond recognition. The question arises as to how well we are hearing the voice of the apostles, especially if we are unaware of the tension which our heavily Greek-influenced heritage imposes on our reading of Scripture. The translation of the Bible into the language of Neoplatonism seems to have affected some of the primary terms dealing with the biblical view of man. It has also worked to obscure the biblical view of Christ and thus of the Godhead itself. The issue is critical since the creeds defining the Trinity for posterity were formed in a Greco-Roman milieu. The impetus for this exploration into the biblical portrait of Jesus and his relation to God arises from a prolonged reflection on the troubled history of Christology. The findings of scholars of the pre-Nicene development of the doctrine of Christ frequently suggest that a corrupting influence was at work on the Christian faith as it moved away from the shelter of its original Hebrew environment into the menacing atmosphere of Greek philosophy. The transition may have involved much more than simply a legitimate restatement of Christian truth for Gentile believers. The Christ of the 4th and 5th century church councils emerge as a figure essentially different from the Jesus whom the New Testament writers proclaim with the united testimony to be the promised Messiah in whom God's purpose for the world is being worked out. A number of striking quotations will illustrate the point that all was not well with the faith as it succumbed to the temptation to borrow religious concepts from its pagan environment. L.W. Grenstead, writing in 1933, observed about the development of Christianity that the heritage from philosophy came in more insidiously. In the second century, we find Justin Martyr and others proclaiming Christianity as a philosophy of the schools. The Logos of Stoicism is identified with the Logos of John. The growing web of fantasy still remained a very real danger, and so it remains down to this present day. Meanwhile, and most serious of all, a radical confusion had fallen upon the doctrine of God. The personal God of Judaism was very imperfectly fused with the demigods of popular Greek religion and with the metaphysical abstracts whereby the philosophers had sought to make the concept of God adequate as a basis for thought and for being. That's from Grenz's book, The Person of Christ, written in 1933. Christology was not left untouched by the reshaping of the doctrine of God. But can the New Testament, with its heritage in the prophets of Israel, be invaded by Greek philosophy? 
without the loss of an essential element? Filson's concern is evident in the following statement. He said, I quote, the primary kinship of the New Testament is not with this Gentile environment, but rather with the Jewish heritage and environment of which we spoke in the first half of this lecture. We are often led by our traditional creeds and theology to think in terms dictated by Gentile and especially Greek concepts. We know that no later than the second century there began the systematic effort of the apologists to show that the Christian faith perfected the best in Greek philosophy. The New Testament speaks always with disapproval and usually with blunt denunciation of Gentile cults and philosophies. It agrees essentially with the Jewish indictment of the pagan world. That's from Filson's book, The New Testament Against Its Environment, written in 1950. Misgivings about the way in which Greek philosophy has damaged the faith are common enough. Norman Snaith's warnings are amongst the most outspoken. I quote, There have always been Jews who have sought to make terms with the Gentile world, and it has in time meant the death of Judaism for all such persons. There have been Christians from the beginning who have sought to do this too. Often it has been done unconsciously, but whether consciously or unconsciously, the question needs to be faced as to whether it is right. Our position is that the reinterpretation of biblical theology in terms of the ideas of the Greek philosophers has been both widespread throughout the centuries and everywhere destructive to the essence of Christian faith. The whole Bible, the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, is based on the Hebrew attitude and approach. We are of the firm opinion that this ought to be recognized on all hands to a greater extent. It is clear to us, and we hope, that we've made it clear in these pages to others that there is often a great difference between Christian theology, so-called, and biblical theology. Neither Catholic nor Protestant theology is based on biblical theology. In each case, we have a dominion of Christian theology by Greek thought. We hold that there can be no right answer to the question what is Christianity, until we have come to a clear view of the distinctive ideas of both Old and New Testaments and their difference from the pagan ideas which so largely have dominated so-called Christian thought. That's from Norman Snaith's book, The Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament written in 1944. Contemporary writers on Christology may be found in one of two camps. The first stalwartly maintains the so-called orthodox view of the person of Christ, despite the enigmas of the figure they describe. I quote, 
Jesus could be, quote, the only son, only begotten means unique, and man's true representative. He could be perfect God and perfect man with two natures in one person, without confusion, change, division, or severance. That's a quotation from the doctrinal decision of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. According to this council, Jesus was man, but not a man. His ego, personality, was divine, pre-existent, clothing itself and operating in a human body. He came into history, according to that council, but not out of history. He was God in and working through man, not a man raised to the divine level. His manhood was full and complete. He was fully, quote, integrated, even if subject to the limitations of a Jew of his age and place. The foregoing may strike us as dry and academic and abstruse. That is the result of our approach, that of the Greek mind. Not only did Jesus and his first disciples accept Jewish monotheism, without question, he expressly reaffirmed it. You'll find that in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and following. Belief in one God, the Creator, is thus the foundation of the Christian faith, and we must discard at the outset any idea that the doctrine of the Trinity either abandons or modifies it. That's from R.J.W. Bevan, Steps to Christian Understanding, written in 1958. On the other hand, many in the course of Christian history have wondered whether such, quote, orthodox definitions of the person of Christ can be so easily wedded with Jesus' plainly Unitarian creed as cited by Mark in chapter 12, verses 29 and following. The contemporary Roman Catholic scholar Thomas Hart reviews Orthodox Christology with the reminder that, and I quote, Jesus is called man in the generic sense, but not a man. He has a human nature, but is not a human person. The person in him is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Jesus does not have a human personal center. This is how the Council of Chalcedon gets around the problem of split personality. Thomas Hart then goes on to examine the shortcomings that many theologians find today in the Chalcedonian model. Firstly, divine nature and human nature cannot be set side by side and numbered as if they were similar quantities. Secondly, the Chalcedonian formula makes a genuine humanity impossible. This difficulty flows from the divinity overshadowing the humanity and from Jesus not having a human personal center. Thirdly, the Chalcedonian formula has a very meager basis in Scripture. The Council calls Jesus true God, 
But the New Testament shies away from calling Jesus God. End of quotation from Hart's book, To Know and Follow Jesus. A host of problems arises from the traditional proposition that Jesus is God in the sense required by orthodox creeds. Does the New Testament really present us with this definition of the Savior? Or are we perhaps misunderstanding some of the data and so distorting the New Testament's Christological message? Is there perhaps a semantic barrier between our customary reading of key New Testament words and the original intention of the authors of Scripture? An Englishman visiting America and remarking that he is, quote, mad about his flat, should not expect to be understood. The situation will be a good example of Bernard Shaw's quip that England and America are two countries separated by a common language. In England, the Englishman will convey the notion that he is, quote, excited about his apartment. Across the Atlantic, it will be thought that he is, quote, angry about his flat tire. A similar breakdown in communication occurs if an Englishman announces in America that Tom and Jane have, quote, broken up. Americans will think that the pair has ended a relationship. In England, the same words inform us that their school term has ended. An American was once asked in England, quote, do you want a pie? The question came from a man delivering milk known in England as a milkman, though the word will have little meaning in America, where milk is bought in stores. The American was surprised that the milkman would be selling pies, until she realized that what he really intended, veiled by his cockney accent, was, do you want to pay? Again, a serious misunderstanding arose, because one party's use of words was foreign to the one he was addressing. A similar, so to speak, crossing of lines occurs when Bible readers are unfamiliar with the language of the authors of the New Testament. This does not mean that everyone needs to learn Greek. They must, however, appreciate that the New Testament Hebrew Christians do not necessarily use words as we do in the 20th century or the 21st century. We all recognize that even since 1611, when the King James or Authorized Version was translated, some words have undergone a complete change of meaning. In order to read the Bible intelligently, we need to enter into the thought world of the New Testament. We must, so to speak, hear words as they heard them. If we do not, we may seriously misunderstand the faith which the apostles intended to communicate to us. I note that the point was made in an interesting way by a former clergyman of the Church of England who sensed his inability to cope with the documents which he was charged to interpret. David Watson wrote, and I quote, A sympathetic study of traditional Jewish religion can reveal the extent to which the modern English Christian 
gives a meaning to the words of the New Testament different from that which was in the minds of the Jewish writers. Greek was the language they used to convey the universal Christian message. But their mode of thinking was to a large extent Hebraic. For a full understanding, it is necessary for the modern Christian not only to study the Greek text, but to sense the Hebraic idea which the Jewish writers sought to convey in Greek words. I cannot claim to have become very skilled in this, but made enough progress to discover how greatly I had misinterpreted the Bible in the past. Like all ordained Christian ministers, I had spoken dogmatically, authoritatively, from the pulpit, which no one may occupy without a license from a bishop. And much of what I had said had been misleading, because my own mind was incapable of giving a correct interpretation of the book I was authorized to expound. For me, the realization of this fact made nonsense of the distinction between clergy and laity, and was the main cause of my relinquishment of my orders, as to say my church authority, to be a preacher. In describing my own intellectual deficiencies and the process by which I discovered my inability to grasp the meaning of the Bible across the vast linguistic gulf separating me from its Jewish writers, I can surely claim to write with first-hand knowledge. From what I know of the clergy in general, I see no reason for supposing that I was peculiar in suffering from this particular deficiency. In fact, the authority of the Protestant ministry as a whole, the claim to be able to understand the Bible and expound it as the Word of God, is, in my view, a vast confidence trick. I'm not accusing the clergy of being fraudulent or even insincere. The confidence trick is collective. Individually, those who engage in it are deceived by it. Just as when I began to expound the Bible from the pulpit, I was fully confident that I was able to give a correct interpretation. Some may believe that the rite of ordination itself bestows divine grace sufficient to overcome any liability to mislead a congregation through an incorrect interpretation. If this view is held, however, it must be reconciled with the indisputable fact that the Christian ministry as a whole has produced a large number of different and often irreconcilable versions of the Christian faith, all supposed to have been derived from the same biblical record. Any claim that training and ordination produce the only authentic Christian teaching is fraudulent. The 39 Articles of the Church of England state specifically in no uncertain terms that true Christian doctrine is derived not from the Church's councils and traditions, but from the Bible alone. Anglo-Catholics believe the very opposite. Consequently, when one of them 
after induction to a benefice reads the articles publicly and declares his assent to them, he virtually commits perjury. It is, however, legalized perjury. End of quotation from the book Christian Myth and Spiritual Reality, written in 1967. What, for example, do the biblical writers mean by the all-important word God? Do they mean, as we do, an uncreated divine being who has always existed? Very frequently, God is the name for the supreme being, as to say in Greek, Theos, the one God, which refers in the New Testament to the Father some 1,325 times. But does the word God have another meaning? in the Bible. If we report that we've been introduced to, quote, the President, it may be thought that we have met the President of the United States. On the other hand, it's quite possible that the context of our remark will allow our audience to know that we mean, say, the President of the local bank. Fortunately, there's not much room for misunderstanding. We all recognize that the term President can be used at different levels. It is, so to speak, an elastic term capable of referring to persons in different offices. The word itself, however, is ambiguous. Its meaning must be determined by its context. We would not consider someone very intelligent who insisted that the word president always and invariably means President of the United States. If we read the Bible with our 20th century conviction that the word God invariably means an eternal, uncreated being, we quickly run into trouble at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, where Satan is called God. Our original theory about the term God has to be adjusted to allow a secondary meaning for God not to be confused with the use of God in the absolute sense. In John 10.34, we find the plural gods. An examination of the context would reveal that Jesus here spoke of the leaders of Israel as gods. They were representatives of God, the one God, to whom God addressed his word. And as such, they were given a divine title as we read in Psalm 82, verse 6. But no one would think that they were gods in the same sense as the one God. A Jewish writer of the first century, Philo, speaks of Moses as, quote, God and King. I quote from Philo, Did not Moses also enjoy an even greater partnership with the Father and Maker of the universe being deemed worthy of the same title? For he, Moses, was named God and King. Theoske Vasilevs. God and King of the whole nation. That's a quotation from Philo in his work, Life of Moses. The words of Thomas addressed to Jesus in John 20, verse 28, read, My Lord and my God. Because many readers of the Bible have been conditioned to believe that Jesus is, quote, God, in the sense in which we use that word 
in the 20th century, they jumped to the conclusion that this must be what Thomas meant. Jesus must therefore be an eternally pre-existent being. But if Jesus is, quote, God in that absolute sense, why, only a few verses earlier, does Jesus address his Father as my God, calling him at the same time your God, the God of the disciples? When Jesus addressed the Father as, quote, my God, in John 20, verse 17, he acknowledged that he was inferior to God, the Father. Jesus is not, therefore, God in the absolute sense. For Thomas, too, Jesus is God in a qualified sense as Messiah, the supreme legal agent of the one God. The one whom Thomas calls God is himself inferior to the one God addressed by Jesus as his God. Thus understood, Jesus remains within the category of Messiah, Son of God, a category which John expressly imposes on his entire book, as we read in John 20, verse 31. Fundamental to John's whole Christological outlook, there are two primary facts. Jesus is to be believed in as Messiah, Son of God, while the Father's unique status is preserved as, quote, the only true God. John 17, verse 3, and, quote, the one who alone is God. John 5, verse 44. Most significantly, the promised Messiah was given the title God in Psalm 45, verse 6. I quote, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the next verse, it's made clear that this God Messiah has been blessed by his God. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed you. We find this in Hebrews 1, verse 8, quoting Psalm 45, verse 6. And the title, God, is used in a qualified sense to define Jesus. The highest honor was given to Jesus by Thomas when he addressed him with the royal messianic titles, Lord and God, derived from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 11. New Testament evidence that Jesus is God in the same sense as God the Father is very scant indeed. If we are sensitive to the proportions of the biblical use of the term God, we will note the fact that it refers to the Father over 1,325 times in the New Testament, while God is used of Jesus only twice with complete certainty. Other possible cases in which Jesus is called God are all doubtful, as is well known for grammatical and syntactical reasons. These facts suggest that the very occasional use of the word God for Jesus is a special reference. Obviously, then, it might be very misleading to say in the 21st century that Jesus is God unless we first understand in what sense that word is used by John and Thomas, whom he reports. Our use of words must not dictate 
the Bible's usage. We may not simply rely on the sound of a word without inquiring about its meaning. Above all, we must be willing to let go of a dogmatic insistence on acceptance of doctrine without inquiry. Such inflexible adherence to the way we've always believed blocks the search for truth, which is the hallmark of the growing Christian, as we read in Acts 17, verse 11. Scholars point to the adverse effects of philosophy. 19th century liberalism raised the issue of the negative effect of Greek philosophy on the original faith. The celebrated Adolf Harnack maintained that the gospel had been obscured by the acute Hellenizing which gave rise to traditional formulations about Christ. The desire to separate Jesus and his teaching from the accretions or additions of Greek philosophy encouraged a healthy freedom to explore new ideas. Unfortunately, liberalism developed its own assumptions. We may suspect that its theology was sometimes more an attempt to reassure itself that its own modern beliefs were reflected in the teaching of Jesus than a successful return to apostolic faith. It appears that the Hebrew thought world of the Bible remained unpopular. The spirit of truth and the spirit of tolerance should not necessarily be equated. Nevertheless, where tolerance encourages free inquiry and a setting aside of traditional presuppositions, truth is likely to emerge. The so-called liberal tendency created an atmosphere in which traditional doctrines could be questioned. The process of reassessing every aspect of belief encouraged a consideration of the way in which post-biblical Greek metaphysics had led to a loss of the biblical Christ. The loosening of the grip exercised by traditional dogma has proved to be a positive result of post-Enlightenment theology. Discontent with Nicene or Chalcedonian definitions of Jesus has surfaced repeatedly. The search for the Jesus of history has continued in our own time. It received a new impetus when the, quote, myth of God incarnate was published in 1977. Harnack had been right to point to the problematic Hellenization of the original Hebrew-oriented faith. It's a failure to distinguish between what is truly of Scripture and what of tradition, which leads many contemporary so-called evangelicals to equate opposition to the dogma of Christ's co-eternal divinity with an attack on Scripture itself. Evangelicals, while they rally under the banner of sola scriptura, that's to say we believe in the Bible alone, they are sometimes unable to distinguish Scripture from traditional interpretations of Scripture. Lindbeck sounds the alarm when he points out 
that, quote, most biblical Protestants adhere to a post-biblical Trinitarianism, but they act as if those teachings were self-evidently biblical. That's from Lindbergh's book, The Nature of Doctrine and Religion, Theology in a Post-Liberal Age. F.F. Bruce made a very shrewd observation which deserves the closest attention. I quote, People who adhere to belief in the Bible only, as they believe, often adhere, in fact, to a traditional school of interpretation of sola scriptura. Evangelical Protestants can be just as much servants of tradition as Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox, only they don't realize that it is tradition. End of quotation from F.F. F. Bruce from Correspondence with Me in 1981. To Michael Servetus and the Dutch Anabaptists led by Adam Pastor, as well as to the whole community of Polish Anabaptist, the Trinity was a deviation from biblical monotheism, a mistaken attempt to translate apostolic belief in one God, the Father, into the language of Greek metaphysics. Worse still, the creeds and the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon were used in coercive and destructive ways to force belief in these dogmas. This was all the more regrettable since the terminology of the discussion on Christology was itself a jumble of ambiguous terms in sharp contrast to the Bible's plainly Unitarian creed, which is found in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, John 17, 3, Ephesians 4, verse 6, and of course, from the words of Jesus in Mark 12, verses 29 and following. The freedom to explore, apart from the, quote, tyranny of dogma, represented, for example, by the Athanasian Creed, which threatens death to deviance from so-called Orthodox Trinitarianism. This led to the rediscovery of a frequently forgotten element in the Church's presentation of Jesus, his humanity, his being a genuine human being. It was widely admitted that traditional understandings of Jesus often suffered from a latent so-called docetism. That means the belief that Jesus only seemed to be human. But this, for John the Apostle, signaled very antichrist, as we find in 1 John 4, verse 2, and 2 John 7. Moreover, traditional formulations about Christ seem to demonstrate a fondness for a particular interpretation of John 1.1 to the exclusion of the very human portraits presented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. In fact, the Gospel of John had been allowed 
a more than proportionate influence in the formation of Christology. Could this have been because the style of John's writing, while actually very Hebraic, appealed to the speculative Greek mind and could be easily misunderstood and distorted by Gentiles? We suggest that the tendency to obscure the humanity of Christ arose in opposition to the central and essentially simple New Testament affirmation of Jesus as Messiah, the second Adam, supernaturally conceived, yet coming into existence in the womb of his mother. This view of Jesus' origin we may, with Raymond Brown, usefully call, quote, conception Christology. That's from Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah. Raymond Brown insists that Matthew and Luke know nothing about a literal pre-existence of the Messiah. They could not, therefore, have been Trinitarians in the traditional sense. Jesus' conception for them, Matthew and Luke, is his coming into being. The germ of later Trinitarian theology should be sought elsewhere than in these gospel accounts. Should it be ascribed then to John and Paul or to distortion of their writings caused by the speculative tendency of Greek philosophy? This influence was apparently already at work when John writing at the end of the first century, pointedly emphasizes against an incipient Gnostic docetism the humanity of Jesus, 1 John 4, verse 2, 2 John 7. According to John, Jesus came en sarki, that's to say, as a human person, not into a human body, which is a very different matter. John seems in his first epistle to be correcting an emerging misunderstanding of his Logos doctrine in the Gospel, in John 1, verses 1 to 3. It was the impersonal, eternal life which was with the Father, according to 1 John 1, verse 2, before the birth of Jesus, not the Son, himself pre-existing. In other words, John intended us to understand that when the Word became flesh, John 1.14, the transition was not that of a divine person becoming a human person, but of an impersonal personification, compared with that wisdom in Proverbs 8, verses 22 and 30, or the Word of God, lowercase w, becoming embodied as a human being. The subsequent development of Trinitarian thinking was encouraged by a misunderstanding of the Hebrew notion of Word by Justin Martyr. For John, Logos, or Word with lowercase w, signified not a second person in the Godhead, but the self-expressive activity of God. Justin Martyr 
who as a Platonist had been accustomed to thinking of the Logos as an intermediary person between God and man, not unnaturally reads Jesus back into his idea, that's to say Justin Martyr's idea, of the Logos. And then he thinks of him as the pre-existing son, a person numerically different from and subordinate to the one God. Justin Martyr then proceeds to find Jesus in the Old Testament, even identifying him with the angel of the Lord before his incarnation. Yet even in Justin, we are a long way from the final creedal formulation of the Council of Chalcedon. The important point to be noted is that developed Trinitarianism cannot be traced back to the New Testament through the earliest church fathers. These fathers always thought of Christ as subordinate to the one God. Some believed the Son had a beginning. The point at which Greek philosophy was able to interfere with the biblical teaching was the Gospel of John, and particularly his prologue. A misunderstanding of John's Gospel led to the projection of Jesus back onto the pre-existing Logos. Thus, the simple Messianic Christology of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also of John, provided he's not read from a speculative Greek perspective, was thus obscured. It has been the task of the Cambridge myth of God incarnate theologians to raise the question as to whether, quote, talk of Jesus' pre-existence ought probably in most, perhaps in all cases, to be understood on the analogy of the pre-existence of the Torah or the law to indicate the eternal divine purpose being achieved through Jesus rather than pre-existence of a fully personal kind. That's a quotation from Morris Wiles in his book The Remaking of Christian Doctrine, written in 1974. Note also Morris Wiles' observation in The Myth of God Incarnate, where he says, Incarnation, in its full and proper sense, is not something directly presented in Scripture. If this is the right reading, then, John Robinson's observation about the Father's treatment of John is correct. Patristic theology of whatever school abused these texts in John by taking them out of context and giving them a meaning which John never intended. Functional language about the Son and the Spirit being sent into the world by the Father was transposed into that of eternal and internal relationships between persons in the Godhead, and words like, quote, generation, procession, were made into technical terms which New Testament usage simply will not substantiate. And a quotation from J.T. Robinson in an article 
the fourth gospel and the church's doctrine of the trinity in a book called 12 more new testament studies written in 1984 complaints about mistreatment of john's concept of the word with lowercase w have frequently been steamrolled into obscurity it is time for some significant voices to be heard in 1907 the professor of systematic theology at Jena in Germany produced his Systeme des Christlichen Lehrer, the culmination of a lifetime's reflection on the nature of the Christian faith. In company with many later distinguished commentators, the professor put his finger on the Trinitarian problem which arises when the word word is given a capital W in John 1 and is then treated as a pre-existing second person or being rather than a synonym for the wisdom and creative purpose of the one God. No Trinitarianism is found in John's prologue if the word is given a lowercase w and if it's thought of as a way of describing the intention or plan or gospel of God, not, at that stage, the Son of God. Hans Wendt of Jena subjects the problem to a penetrating analysis. He shows that when the word word, with lowercase w, is understood in a Hebrew sense as God's creative activity, based on its consistent appearance in that sense in the Old Testament, there's no warrant whatsoever for thinking that John meant to say, in the beginning was the co-eternal Son of God, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God. Such an interpretation merely confuses the great central principle of all revelation that God is a single person. If the Word is the Son in a pre-human condition, then both Father and Son are equally entitled to be thought of as the Supreme Deity. This development, however, dealt a fatal blow to the monotheism of the Hebrew Bible, that monotheism which Jesus had publicly confirmed, as we find in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And Jesus had confirmed this in the presence of both an inquiring theologian and his own circle of disciples. If the word in John 1 is taken to mean the word of God or gospel, it is clear that John has in mind the creative word of Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, and Psalm 119, verses 103 to 105. So then a fatal step was taken, says Professor Vent, when the word word or logos of John's prologue was understood not in terms of its Hebrew background, but in the Alexandrian and Philonic sense as an intermediary between God and man. 
I quote from Wendt's book, The Systeme der Christlichen Lehrer, written in 1907. The opening sentences, says Professor Wendt, of John's Gospel, which might sound like the philosophy of Philo, could be understood by an educated Jew or Christian without any reference to Philo. Therefore, we should not argue from Philo's meaning of word as a person or hypostasis. We should not argue that John also meant by word a pre-existing personality. In the remainder of the Gospel and in 1 John, the epistle, the word word or logos is never to be understood in a personal sense. It means rather the revelation of God, which had earlier been given to Israel, John 10:35, had come to the Jews in Holy Scripture, John 5, verse 38, and which had been entrusted to Jesus and committed by him to his disciples, John 8, verse 55, John 12, verse 48, John 17, verses 6, 8, 14 and 17, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and that word would now be preserved by them. 1 John 1, verse 10, 1 John 2, verses 5 and 14. The slightly personifying way in which the word is spoken of as coming into the world, John 1, verses 9 to 14, is typical of the personifying style of the Old Testament references to the Word, as we find in Isaiah 55, 11, Psalm 107, verse 20, Psalm 147, verse 15, and compare that verse with 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. It cannot be proved that the author of the prologue thought of the word as a real person. Only the historical Jesus and not the original word is said to be the Son, as we find in John 1 verses 14 and 18. But in this Son there dwelt and worked the eternal revelation of God. Professor Vent goes on to point out that John's apparent connection with Philo is not to be explained by his adoption of Philo's philosophical idea of the word. The fact is that the apostle is trying to refute the intrusion of Philo's philosophy by representatives of the Alexandrian school who early on opposed the truth with their speculation. Compare with that Acts 18, verses 24 to 28. John aimed his prologue at them. The irony of history is that orthodoxy, so-called, eventually fell for the very same philosophical speculation and proposed a pre-existing, quote, second God and used John to support this departure from monotheism. Modern translations of the prologue with their capitalized word 
and the use of masculine pronouns for logos are an abiding testimony to the Philonic Greek philosophy, which has confused the Hebrew faith of the New Testament. John has been twisted and misunderstood, and the casualty was the unitary monotheism of Jesus and his followers, which we find in John 5, verse 44, and John 17, verse 3. Professor Vent's perceptive analysis deserves the widest hearing. I quote, From the time of Justin, the Logos Christology became dominant in Christian theology. This Logos teaching created a contact and an agreement with the philosophy of late antiquity. The main problem for the latter was how to determine the relationship of the lower material world to the transcendental world of God and the Spirit. To solve this problem, the existence of middle beings, so-called, was posited. These beings were emanations of the deity and represented a gradual means by which the gap between God and man could be bridged. Christian speculation about the Logos as the intermediary in creation was directly related to this Hellenistic philosophical speculation since it offered a similar solution to the same cosmological problem. But the combining of the cosmological, philosophical with religious and soteriological interests contained an inner self-contradiction. If the Logos teaching were to offer an adequate solution to the cosmological problem, the Logos had to be presented as a real mediating person, proceeding indeed from God, but less than God, so that as mediator, the Logos could link God with man. If, on the other hand, the mediator were to bring salvation, then his being must be of equal value with the salvation he is to bring to mankind. He must be thought of, quote, as of a God, as we find in Second Clement 1, verse 1, as either the cosmological view or the soteriological view prevailed, so correspondingly the distance of the Logos from God or his similarity with God was emphasized. The contradiction involved in the Logos speculation is represented by the opposing arguments of the followers of Arius and Athanasius. Both camps believed in the Logos as a pre-existing person. But, as Professor Vent observes, this conception of the Logos as a personal being led to a disturbing consequence. I quote, When not only a personal, heavenly pre-existence, but an eternal, coessential existence with the Father was attributed to the Son, the idea of the unity of God was lost. 
This was the important complaint of all the monarchians, so-called, who were supporters of the strict unity of God. Vent concludes in his section on difficulties with the early Christological dogmas. He says this, Monotheism, which for the Christian view of God is not an insignificant matter, but of fundamental importance, that monotheism was impaired. If the Logos, which belongs to the eternal God, is a person, and as such to be distinguished from the person of the Father, there inevitably arises a plurality in God, and pure monotheism is destroyed. Such is the problem presented by Orthodox Trinitarianism. The close association of Jesus with the one God of Israel does not lead to the Christological conclusions of the so-called creeds. The development which culminated at Nicaea and Chalcedon may be traced in three major stages. Firstly, the Logos of Greek philosophy was identified by the Alexandrian theologians with the pre-existent so-called Christ. Secondly, Rigen postulated the unbiblical doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Thirdly, the so-called Athanasian Creed, reflecting the Trinitarianism of Augustine, abolished all subordination of the Son to the Father and reduced the distinctions within the Godhead to a point where it is all but impossible to say how the three are to be described. It appears that the complex post-biblical controversies about how to define the Son in relation to the Father could have been avoided if the Hebrew terminology of the Bible had been retained. Professor Jeffrey Lamp, in his perceptive analysis of patristic Christology, complains as follows. He says, The Christological concept of the pre-existing Son reduces the real socially and culturally conditioned personality of Jesus to the metaphysical abstraction human nature. This is a universal humanity which the Son assumed and made his own. But universal humanity is an abstract notion. According to this so-called orthodox Christology, the eternal Son assumes a timeless human nature or makes it timeless by making it his own. It's a human nature which owes nothing essential to geographical circumstances. It corresponds to nothing in the actual concrete world. Jesus Christ has not, after all, quote, come in the flesh. That's from Jeffrey Lamp's book, God as Spirit, written in 1977. Mosheim remarked that, quote, controversies relating to the Trinity took their rise in the second century from the introduction of Greek philosophy into the church. 
That's a quotation from Mosheim's Institutes of Ecclesiastical History, written in 1839. The study of biblical theology has brought to light evidence which compels us to consider seriously this distortion of the faith which occurred when Greek philosophy was added to the much simpler Hebraic framework of the Bible. We end with three further quotations. These invite us to renew our investigation of the history of doctrine in the ongoing search for truth. Canon H. Constable wrote in 1893, I quote, Christian men are now inquiring whether accepted views of human nature and future punishment are derived from philosophy and tradition or from scripture. They're beginning to suspect that a vast amount of current theology has human philosophy for its source. Figures in the field of religious thought, which they used to think were figures of Christ, his prophets, and his apostles, they're beginning to suspect are really figures of the evil spirit, figures of Plato and of the various, quote, fathers who derived their theology in great measure from him. That's from Constable's book, Hades or the Intermediate State, written in 1893. Alfred Vaucher summons us to return to biblical faith. Across the pages of the Old and New Testament, the clear waters of revealed truth flow like a majestic river. It is God who only has immortality, offering to men and communicating to men his divine imperishable life. But paralleling this stream flows the muddy river of pagan philosophy, which is that of human soul, of divine essence, eternal, pre-existing the body and surviving it. After the death of the apostles, the two streams merged to make unity of the troubled waters. Little by little, the speculation of human philosophy mixed with divine teaching. Now, the task of evangelical theology is to disengage the two incompatible elements, to dissociate them, to eliminate the pagan element which has installed itself as a usurper in the center of traditional theology, to restore in value the biblical element which only is true and which alone conforms to the nature of God and of man, his creature. That's from Vaucher's book, Le Problème de l'Immortalité. Emerging from that early confusion over the nature of God and man will be the pristine biblical monotheism of the prophets, of Jesus and the apostles. God will be perceived again as one person, the father of Jesus. His uniquely conceived son, the Messiah. The full humanity of Jesus eclipsed by the speculative and abstract theology of the Church Fathers, must be reinstated 
as the basis of the New Testament creed that Jesus is the Messiah. As we read in Matthew 16, verse 16, John 9, verse 22, John 20, verse 31, Acts 5, verse 42, Acts 9, verse 22, and so on. Jesus is the Messiah, the herald of the coming kingdom of God on earth. Scholars of various backgrounds unite in their testimony to the corruption of the Christian faith from the second century onwards. Messianic hopes were gradually forgotten. The notion of the kingdom of God, which is the heart of the Christian gospel, the kingdom of God on earth, these disappeared. Immortality at death took the place of the future resurrection. Like all concepts, the meaning of religious terms is changed with a changing experience and a changing worldview. Transplanted into the Greek worldview, inevitably the Christian teaching was modified, indeed transformed. Questions which had never been asked came into the foreground and the Jewish presuppositions tended to disappear especially were the messianic hopes forgotten or transferred to a transcendent sphere beyond death. When the empire became Christian in the fourth century, the notion of a kingdom of Christ on earth to be introduced by a great struggle all but disappeared, remaining only as the faith of obscure groups. Immortality, the philosophical conception, took the place of the resurrection of the body. Nevertheless, the latter continues because of its presence in the primary sources, but it is no longer a determining factor since its presupposition, the messianic kingdom on earth, has been obscured. As thus the background is changed from Jewish to Greek, so are the fundamental religious conceptions. We have thus a peculiar combination. The religious doctrines of the Bible run through the forms of an alien philosophy. That's the end of a quotation from G.W. Knox, Professor of Philosophy and the History of Religion at Union Theological Seminary, writing in the Encyclopedia Britannica. 1 John 4, verse 2. Early attempts by various factions to cast doubt on the real humanity of Jesus were met by John's strong warning to his disciples that, I quote, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. That's a quotation from 2 John verse 7. Compare that with a similar statement in 1 John 4, verse 2. The translator's New Testament, published by the British and Foreign Bible Society in 1973, render this verse in a way which clears up uncertainty about the phrase, come in the flesh. I quote, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not accept the fact that Jesus came as a human being. Here is the deceiver and the Antichrist.
John's clear stand in favour of the humanity of Jesus is meant to expose as anti-Christian any system which calls in question the fact that Jesus was a real human being. We have seen in an earlier chapter that the official Trinitarian position is that the Saviour possessed impersonal human nature but was not a human person. According to that orthodox so-called statement, he was man but not a man. A being who is or was both God and man could hardly be truly human, tempted in all points even as we are. As so many critics of the Trinity have complained, the traditional teaching that Jesus was God is incompatible with belief that he was really human. The God-man of the post-biblical councils appears to be dangerously like another Jesus of whom Paul warned in his second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4. The irony of all this bitter age-old controversy is that all factions, Unitarians, Binitarians and Trinitarians claim to be worshipping only one God. Those who insist that Jesus is God argue that he's worthy of worship, an act offered only to God. If that point of view were sustained, we would have to conclude that two persons are worthy of worship as God. To propose a Godhead of two or three persons contradicts the many plain biblical statements that God is a single person. It is futile to escape this conclusion by holding that the creeds do not mean by person what we today mean by person. In the Bible, the Father and Jesus are obviously persons in the modern sense, two different individuals. The solution to the puzzle is that, quote, the word worship in Scripture is offered not only to God, but to human persons who hold positions of dignity. The Greek verb proskineo is used both of worship to God and doing obeisance to human persons. Thus, for example, the King of Israel is worshipped in association with God. First Chronicles 29, verse 20. The word there is proskineo in the Septuagint. Daniel was worshipped. In Daniel 2, verse 46, the saints are worshipped in Revelation 3, verse 9. Jesus is worshipped as Messiah, but only one person, the Father, is worthy of worship as God. It is highly significant that another Greek word, latrevo, which is used of religious service only in the New Testament, is applied in all of its 21 occurrences exclusively to the Father in the New Testament. Readers of the King James Version are given the false impression that Jesus is God because he is, quote, worshipped. The same argument would prove that David and the saints are also God. 
It is the modern usage of our word worship which leads readers to suppose that Jesus was worshipped as God. God and his human servants are frequently in close association. I quote from the Bible, And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Exodus 14, verse 31. Another quotation, And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 1 Samuel 12, verse 18. Another quotation, And all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers and worshipped the Lord and the King. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 20. Another quotation, Hezekiah and the princes blessed the Lord and his people Israel. 2 Chronicles 31, verse 8. Modern translations have helped to clarify the issue of worshipping Jesus. In Matthew 8, verse 2, for example, we read of a leper who came and, quote, prostrated himself before him. That's the translator's New Testament. All this is not to deny that Jesus is the one of whom it is said, quote, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As Messiah, Jesus, the accredited representative of the Creator, is honored in association with the one God, his Father, Revelation 5, verse 12 and 13. But he also joins the saints in the Lamb's song of praise to the Father, Revelation 15, verse 3. Compare with that Hebrews 2, verse 12, where the Messiah praises God. He is the beginning and end of God's great plan of salvation, Revelation 1, verse 17. Yet he died, Revelation 1, verse 18, a fact which plainly means that he cannot be God, since God cannot die. Only the Almighty is the supreme God. In Revelation 1, verse 8, compare with that 1, verse 4, the Father is both the Alpha and Omega, and he's the Lord God Almighty who is coming. The latter title, Pantocrator, the Almighty, is nowhere given to Jesus. Despite the attempts of some red-letter Bibles to apply this verse to the Son, perpetuating the long-standing confusion of the Messiah with God. The risen Jesus actually receives a revelation from the Father. Revelation 1 verse 1, demonstrating once again that the Son is not the omniscient God. In Revelation 22 verse 12 and 13, it may well be that the angel, the he of verse 10, speaks as in the Old Testament as God representing him. The Alpha and Omega of verse 13 probably refers, as certainly does Revelation 1 verse 8 and 21 verse 6, to the Father for whom the angel is speaking. The Almighty God is the one, quote, who comes in Revelation 1 verse 8. And his coming may be described also in Revelation 22 verse 12, followed by the divine title in verse 13, 
Jesus is the speaker again from verse 16. It's a fascinating paradox that John, who is so anxious to maintain that Jesus was a real human being who tired and was hungry, has been misunderstood to teach that Jesus was fully God in a Trinitarian sense. John's Gospel repeatedly refers to God as the Father. Yet from John's later epistle, we detect that some, even in his time, were trying to force a definition of Jesus into his writings, which he never intended. The evidence is this. In John's Gospel, the logos, or word with lowercase w, being a somewhat ambiguous term, might be liable to misunderstanding. It might be thought that John meant that a second eternal person existed alongside the Father. But this is not at all what John had in mind, and he takes the opportunity at the beginning of his first epistle to make himself clear. John says, eternal life was what I meant when I said that eternal life was with the Father. First John 1 verse 2. Compare with that John's Gospel, where the Word was with God. It was that impersonal, quote, Word of life, or life, First John 1, 1 and 2, which had now been manifested in a real human person, Jesus. What preexisted was not the Son of God, but the Word or message or promise of life. That promise of life was expressed finally in a human individual, the Messiah of Israel. Incarnation in the Bible does not mean that the second member of a trinity became man, but that the purpose of God to grant immortality to his creatures was revealed, demonstrated, and embodied in a unique human being.